Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, it's your local ER doc, Dr. Ward. And this is Praz the Sandman, as always, using our radio waves to give you that warm, fuzzy sensation you love so much. Is that <laughs> what that is? I've been Surprise. wondering. <laughs> I figured, Praz, you are our newest host of uh, this season and the show, and we really haven't gotten too much into what it is you actually do, aside from knock people out. That's the best way I always do, and that's what you'll learn if you ever cross me on the street next time. <laughs> you will give me a gas mask and so slowly I... <laughs> lull me into, into exactly. sleep. Use that hammer over the head that everyone always talks about. The ancients used some unconventional ways to render anesthesia. Well, let's start with what anesthesia actually means. You know what? There was no way I was going to let any Greek-based word go by without digging into its etymological roots. So it does come from the Greek an, meaning without, and a thesis, which means sensation. So anesthesia is the inhibition or taking away of sensation. Of course, in the old days, surgeons had to practice very, very fast. Right. George Bernard Shaw, famous comedian and playwright, from a play called The Doctor's Dilemma, and this came out in, oh, maybe the early 1800s, so right around my Victorian time period. And here is, here is an old surgeon complaining that, in my early days, you made your man drunk, and the porters and students held him down, and you had to set your teeth and finish the job fast. Nowadays, you work at your ease, and the pain doesn't come until afterwards when you've taken your check and rolled up your bag and left the house. I tell you, Kali... Chloroform has done a lot of mischief. It's enabled every fool to be a surgeon. <laughs> so, uh, chloroform is good, but the earliest known use of anesthesia actually comes from ancient Assyria, around 400 
or before Christian era. And the Assyrians, Ward, you noted they had a very yeah. unique method of knocking people. Apparently, the Assyrians used carotid compression to <laughs> essentially choke you unconscious before a painful procedure like circumcision or cataract surgery. And it looks like the <laughs> Egyptians <laughs> did the same. You know, this is that same sort of thing that a lot of times you might see espionage or spy movies as somebody's trying to break in and they find a guard and they just slowly put a little pressure on the guy's neck and they just go unconscious all of a sudden. It's a chokehold, right? I believe it's known as a uh, Vulcan yeah, neck yeah. pinch. Something like that. Basically what they're doing, they try to slow the heart rate down to a point where it actually slows down blood flow to the brain to the point where they lose consciousness. That's correct. Yeah. Side effects include strokes, death, <laughs> cardiac arrhythmia, mm -hmm. not waking up, you know, that sort it's of stuff. Generally not the best technique. But you know what? For a baby who's getting, or a young man who's getting circumcised, they're generally health, healthy specimens, so they could probably, you know, they could probably take carotid compression. Maybe get a little bit of Fifty Shades uh -huh. of Raw. Uh -huh. Ooh, ouch. Then... As the Arab world took predominance and the Roman Empire after them, they started using what were essentially ether-soaked sponges, although they didn't recognize it as ether at that point. They used a, a drug known as camphor, I believe, mm. as, along with a number of agents such as nightshade, henbane, mandrake, all those ones. So, And that was pretty much the height of anesthesia and knocking people out until... Everybody knows my favorite time period, the Victorian Those era. Are buttons, by the way. So as of yes, so as of 1846, opium and alcohol were the only agents listed or generally generally regarded as having practical value. And an 1847 issue of the journal New Elements of Operative Surgery listed the anesthetics in use at the time as opium. And not morphine derivative, just straight up lying a pipe smoking like Sherlock Holmes opium, water of nightshade, so a homeopathic poison, henbane, lettuce, hypnosis, Alfred Mesmer, the originator of mesmerism was very popular at the time, strapping, compression of nerve trunks, and noise as anesthetics then in use. <laughs> like a CD of Nickelback? That would... <laughs> just like flash noise. Look over there! Ah, Maybe that's where uh, the hammer comes in. I'll take the hammer, thank you. So noise as an anesthetic, so it looks like even to this day, music has been a very large component of the operating Yeah. yeah. Um, Proz, do you ever get to choose the music, or is that all that is always the surgeon? almost always the surgeon, although from time to time, um, when the surgeons are less particular, we tend to throw in our, some of our requests. But yeah, I've heard just about anything um, played from all different ranges of surgeons here. Um, I'll hear... I picture I picture them as classical dudes, you know, like Frasier, you know, kind of kind of old school stuffy classical music. Huh. Oh, I'm picturing hair oh, metal. Oh yeah, and there's classic one rock. moment, one surgeon, this breast surgeon who just started. She'll play like half her tracks are like death metal, and then half of them are Eminem. <laughs> Oh, that is an odd choice. Yeah. Um, we have one surgeon who is Latin American. He played straight reggaeton throughout all of his. You hear pretty much just about anything. Do you know who the founding fathers of your field? No, I'm not really sure. Well, there's about three. 
three or four names that come into play, and their estates have all been fighting about it for years. But the first documented was a small country town doctor, Dr. Crawford W. Long, which is how I imagine him sounding. You know, part foghorn, leghorn, part uh, southern gentleman. <laughs> um, and he used anesthesia to etherize, so he actually took a cloak, dipped it in the liquid ether, and kind of held it against this gentleman's face to remove some neck cysts in 1842. So he's the one who currently holds the title of first anesthesiologist, and he got a postage stamp in 1940, which used a photo of him that looks appropriately foghorn, leghorn-like. Only problem is the stamp was a two-cent stamp, which is great, but national postal rates that year were three cents. Wow. Which means the stamp could only go within the town limits. Anyone who wanted to send a stamp using that anesthesia beyond, uh, beyond the town of Jefferson were forced to stick two or more long stamps on their envelopes. I guess you could say those stamps had a <laughs> long way to go. That's pretty heavy duty to, to you know, administer ether just to remove a few nexus. Good for Dr. Long. Yeah, this must have been before, though, um, they had good local anesthetic, though. I believe good local anesthetic was yeah, high quality. served to you in a glass instead of there straight from the Different times. You could argue the argument after Long that at drinking, some people are in a state of close to general anesthesia. Well, maybe Dr. Long had to fill out patient satisfaction scores. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next, the next gentleman who came along and sort of advanced the field of anesthesia at least a little bit, was a dentist, Horace Wells. So in 1845, he was experimenting with the use of nitrous oxide as an anesthetic. And he had also recently discovered how to distill and purify ether. So he wanted to give a demonstration to medical students at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. However, the ether he gave was improperly administered, and the patient woke up and started crying out in pain. And the audience of students in the surgical theater, because if you remember, you know, medical lectures back then were really these big amphitheaters. And all the students started jeering, humbug. Like, they actually stood up and shouted, humbug, humbug is you, you know, Dr. Wells. And this is important because we'll, we'll get to that when we introduce the more recognized font, uh, founding father. But because of this embarrassment of improperly administering ether, all of his work previously was thrown out. Wells was discredited and sort of exiled. So he went out touring, and tragically, he ended up becoming addicted to opium and then later chloroform. Uh, I only mention this because although it is a tragic tale, it's also a very strange one. He experimented in 1848 with chloroform for a period of about four weeks straight, becoming increasingly deranged until one day he just rushed out in the street and threw sulfuric acid over the clothing of two prostitutes. No explanation, no argument, just ran out in the middle of the street, threw acid on them, and then mm. kept on running. That was, well, meth heads, well, that was, that was the meth head of the day. The chloroform? Yeah. Right, just constantly oh. scratching at himself. But then we get to a name which you might start to recognize, Praz, and that is another dentist, William T.G. Morton. 
he used ether to remove a tumor from a patient's jaw, also at Massachusetts General Hospital. And surgeons watched one who had been at Wells' failed demonstration. And when he saw that Morton successfully excised the tumor and that ether could anesthetize, Morton became more widely recognized as the founder of anesthesia. And that surgeon who had been present at the previous humbug lecture stood up and said, Gentlemen, this is no humbug, which just gave me a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. That's good timing and good. Good public speaking. Right? Can you imagine standing up? How good would you feel, Ward, to do any procedure in the ER and just have someone stand and go, gentlemen, this is no humbug. This guy knows okay, what's can what. I say, He's a regular beast. Can I say we should do that more often? Because I, I'll bet you physician satisfaction would go up tremendously. I've actually had one, not I don't want to say standing ovation, but um, <laughs> I reduced a shoulder. And the family <laughs> around the patient just stood up and clapped their hands. Right. But, we, but they were—it's not a standing ovation because they were already standing. <laughs> but that felt great, you know. I—I think I think we should do it more often. Pros, next time your surgeon like cuts out, a, takes out a, an appendix, you just should stand up and, gentlemen, this is no humbug. <laughs> so at that point. In mid-1800s, it really, anesthesia really started to take off. First with ether, later, a, a year later, Professor James Simpson, a Scottish obstetrician, uh, began giving chloroform to women uh, for pain during childbirth. And then chloroform became the hot new drug of its day until in 1853, Dr. John Snow, not the one from Game of Thrones, uh, he was a full-time anesthetist and he chloroformed queen victoria for the birth of her child uh, both in 1853 and 1857 and once the queen was seen to use chloroform anesthesia became in a totally accepted field of study there was a college of anesthetists formed in london and all the women wanted well if queen victoria is being gassed let me do it so from from then till now uh, we sort of saw the rise of the field and initially it wasn't anesthesiology like it wasn't a recognized specialty until well frankly we got a little suspicious because at first every every tom dick harry and barber surgeon was doing it but as surgeons began using anesthesia on patients it was left to their nurses to be the real first professional group to give the anesthetic under the surgeon's direction because he was far too busy getting his tools ready so the very first nursing specialty was nurse anesthesia and training took place almost entirely in the operating room later on into more history which i won't force you to get into they began transferring the actual administration of anesthesia because it became so complicated to its own specialty and that brings us to our dear friend the sandman pros so nowadays what's the purpose of anesthesia basically um the idea behind anesthesia is that primarily, um, most importantly, uh, is to keep the patients safe, to allow them to survive surgery. Most people don't actually see what happens during their surgery, and they do a lot of pretty crazy things that most people wouldn't be able to live through if they weren't actively being watched by somebody else. And then comfort 
is actually secondary to safety, which is something that not a lot of people often recognize. A couple of examples, when somebody's doing surgery on a lung, they can't really operate if the lung's moving up and down or if the diaphragm, which is the big muscle responsible for breathing, is also moving or contracting. So one of our jobs is to, to help them do this safely is to assist with lung movement and muscle contraction. If someone's having surgery on their belly, the abdominal muscles also contract and that makes it harder to do the surgery properly and can even make things dangerous. So part of the job is also to help optimize the surgical conditions in that way. Is it always an anesthesiologist who has to give anesthesia or are there still nurses? There are still nurse anesthetists. These days uh, we see more of a collaborative model where uh, typically we work as a team where I might supervise up to four nurse anesthetists at four different sites as they stay in the room, ensure the patient's safe, keep me updated with any issues or concerns that may arise. So you're looking at four Um, patients at once? Well, the nurse anesthetist is the one who's directly looking at the patients. I basically keep a bird's eye view of it all. It's like how a whole team of floor nurses, of which one or two are assigned to an individual patient and watching them directly, and they'd page you and say, hey, doctor, we need their case 2.9, we need orders, we need um, a stool saw, etc. Similarly, our nurse anesthetists stay in the room, watch our patients, and would maybe page me from time to time, say, hey, doctor, the blood pressure is having some issues, uh, heart rhythm issues here and there, what should we do? And then, you know, they say anesthesiology is one of the most stressful jobs ever. Like, out of all the jobs. Why is that? Aside from logistics of doing anesthesia in the model that we do, which I won't go too much into, it's a field where things change very quickly. It's very fast-paced. Normally, when a doctor examines a patient, you're able to interview them, ask them, hey, what's wrong? And a lot of times they'll be able to say, hey, my stomach hurts, hey, my head feels funny, hey, this is all going on. And that interview is typically a big clue. But when you have a patient who's asleep under anesthesia, you don't have that information. You, they can't tell you what's going on wrong with them. So you already are at a disadvantage in that respect. Furthermore, when things go wrong, it can lead to very disastrous outcomes within a matter of a few minutes if it's not immediately corrected. And so trying to figure out what these issues are and being able to act on them right away is essential. Oh, I see. So the stakes are pretty high. Like every, almost every case, every patient is life and death. Absolutely. I mean, I guess if you imagine for for us, Ward, it would be like if, say, an appendix comes in and you start with, how are you feeling? And somebody tells you, well, my stomach, oh, no, my appendix already exploded. <laughs> I would say unfair, and gentlemen. Just, <laughs> unfair, sir. Yeah. Right. I declare I a declare. humbug. On this as you know, there's no humbugs in the OR. Not so, anymore. Well, yeah, sterile technique took a little while to get into surgery and hadn't even begun quite at the time anesthesia was first introduced. In fact, the same gentleman who first demonstrated the use of chloroform, Dr. James Simpson, also used it as a party trick, gassing his friends and neighbors as they would stumble around the room giggling and forgetful to demonstrate how safe and effective his new anesthetic was. So for about a hundred years or so after that first ether demonstration, most of the anesthetics were gases, ether, nitrous oxide, chloroform. And for our Patreon patrons, we're actually going to have a mini-sode this month all about chloroform 
and what it actually does versus its Hollywood interpretation. So donate and tune in for that. But what sort of anesthetics are used so, today, um, I could break this down into a couple of the big divide, what I'd say, are inhaled gases and IV medications. Most of our anesthetics are IV medications that we give. Typically what we'll do is we'll put patients to sleep with an IV and then turn on gas to keep them asleep throughout the case. Now, the common gases you mentioned are nitrous oxide, which is still in very popular use today. We don't really use chloroform anymore, but we use some more developed ether gases known like, like sevoflurane or desflurane. Those are the main gases that we use to keep people asleep. Now, the IV agents we typically use in the OR, this one uh, became very famous several years ago when Michael Jackson passed away. I'm sure um, everybody knew the household name of propofol. Mama's milk. Yep. Which became notoriously euphemized as Jackson juice. Of course, this also goes to back to what I was saying before, the dangers of administering anesthesia without having an anesthesiologist available. But we use a lot of other agents as well. Ketamine is a popular anesthetic. We use narcotics like fentanyl and morphine. Sedatives, quote, was we know as tranquilizers, a class of drugs called benzodiazepines, the common ones being Versed and Ativan. Those are the generally the more popular ones, and then we have paralytic medications we use as well. You know, you have narcotics like fentanyl, you have hypnotics like propofol. Those are to put people under, and then you want something that's going to block their sensation because you don't want to wake them back up. Um, and then there's even drugs to wake them back up. So what what are the stages of your your work day? You know, how is it just well, you're knocked out, job well done and open up the crossword and walk away or take us through to through what the patient sees as they so go under. So here's what I tell my patients every morning when I'm um explaining them and getting consent for anesthesia. Here I'm talking specifically about general anesthesia. There's also sedation which is a little different, but what I tell the patients is say, look, we're going to take you into the room, we're going to put on some basic monitors, and we'll give you a mask with oxygen to breathe. And then we're going to give you medicine through an IV. You're going to feel that medicine burn as it goes into your arm. And then you're going to open your eyes and you'll be in the recovery room. Patients <laughs> will wake up and they'll be like, so when are they doing the surgery? And then later on, if I see them again, or they'll recount their experiences from previous surgeries... They don't even remember going back to the OR half the time. I'm picturing that scene from Scrubs where a patient has a surgery and wakes up and he has this long Rip Van Winkle beard, which the surgeon had been putting on all the post-surgical patients as a clever joke. They'd wake up and the nurse would be like, you've been asleep for 80 years. <laughs> as, they're coming, as you're coming out of anesthesia, it's surprising with your defenses. You could, you'd believe just about anything anyone tells you at the moment, but... The good thing is you don't remember half of it either. Oh, that's right. Some of the anesthetics make you forget, mm -hmm. don't they? Not only are, are they hypnotics, they are, oh gosh, what's that specific word for it? But they, they wipe your short-term memory for that duration. The big one that we use for that are the, um, the tranquilizers, the benzodiazepines, like um, Versed and Ativan. Right. Giving IV Versed, which is typically our agent of choice, as they're going back to the OR, calms them down and makes them forget about their journey 
into the operating room. So the induction phase is putting people to sleep and maintenance, you're trying to make sure that their blood pressure doesn't go too low, that their heart rate stays the same, that they're breathing okay. What about when it when the surgery is over? Do you give people a compound to wake them up? Do you allow them to wake up naturally? Do you cross your fingers and hope for the best? I mean, what what happens at the end between the completion of the surgery and that waking up to the where did so, I go just now moment? Basically, um, <clears throat> what we do to wake people up is actually even simpler. There's no there's while there's some drugs that can reverse the action of other medications that we give generally to wake people up you just simply turn off the anesthetic and let it be exhaled or let it exit the body and that's how you effectively wake up now when we wake our patients up typically we're looking for a few different things we're looking for their heart rate and blood pressure to be stable we're looking for them to have good oxygen levels but we're also looking for them to regain the ability to breathe on their own without the assistance of the ventilator that we use um, we like to see that with minimal ventilator support and you may you guys may have seen this in an intensive care unit when you're ready to extubate a patient but with minimal support they should be able to breathe reasonable vo lung volumes breathe at a reasonable rate, not too fast, not too slow. In those cases where we give muscle paralysis to considerably weaken the muscles, we want to see that that's been reversed and that the patient's sufficiently strong enough to lift their head up, give a decent hand grasp, and that way we know they won't tire out at the end of surgeries. At that point, we typically know it's safe. We pull out their breathing devices, disconnect them from the ventilator, and bring them over to the recovery room. Let's talk about some sure. of the tools you use. You and, and Ward are very in common in that it almost seems like your field is this mix of ultra low tech and at the same time some of the most advanced stuff out there. So what, what sort of devices are you using well, to do your work? So we go from very small devices to very big devices over there. The biggest device we use is obviously our ventilator machine, the anesthesia machine, which it does a lot of things. Primarily, it delivers the gas that keeps the patient asleep. It also delivers the volume. It delivers the rate of breaths that the patient gets. It decides what the content, how much oxygen is in those breaths. Some of the more basic devices we use, oral airway. When you have a patient who's sleeping or sedated, and this happens to many of us when we sleep, they have a tendency to snore and what we call obstruct their airway where basically when you're in a deep state of relaxation or rest, your tongue tends to move back, the tissue around your neck tends not to be as tense and tends to collapse a little bit. And that can significantly interfere with the ability to breathe in oxygen, blow out carbon dioxide. So this oral airway is a small device that goes into the mouth to sort of push the tongue down and to create a, an open pathway, an open space between the mouth and the trachea so that you can breathe more easily. Right, and sometimes when we do sedations in the emergency department, you're not, we're not supposed to go that deep because <laughs> that would be almost close to general anesthesia slash deep sedation, but you, it can happen, and uh, that's one of the dangers of using things like propofol is that it can push you into that deep, deep level of sedation where 
I think the common term is swallowing your tongue. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you can swallow your tongue, or so to speak. Re- essentially, your your airway muscles all collapse and just relax, and then it obstructs your airway. So it looks like a little curved piece of plastic just to push mm-hmm. the tongue out of the way. It almost looks like a yeah. hollow tongue yeah. itself. At least, at least the model that we're familiar with now. But the very first one of the devices that I think you would recognize as an airway pros wasn't introduced or invented until 1908, so early, early 1900s. I think you said that the reason you want to protect the airway is that the mouth and throat close pretty easily because muscles that normally hold the back of your mouth and throat open and your jaw forward when you are unconscious or gassed relax and Oral airways you can insert over the tongue to create a passage Mm -hmm. for air. Exactly. The first one was just a very short piece of plastic. And then then in around, oh, probably the 1920s, 1930s, Dr. Arthur E. Goodell designed the airway that is basically still in use today. And sometime around World War One, introduced rubber tubes to help hold it open. So what's what's the point of having a rubber tube on? So the rubber tube, basically what this does, this is a tube that is the ancestor of the modern endotracheal tube, which we also see in the ICUs when you see a patient on a ventilator. Essentially, this tube is used to go into the trachea through the vocal cord. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And so you have the tip, which goes directly into the trachea to deliver air to both lungs. And the other end, which is um, which remains outside the mouth, then connects to the ventilator. So the, two, the breathing tube is essentially a conduit between the ventilator and the lungs that allow the ventilator to directly push air and gas into the lungs and allow, basically allows it to breathe for you. Typically, I mean, it's true, there's a lot of secretions in the mouth and in the stomach. We try to minimize the amount of food in the stomach that can be vomited or, as we say, aspirated by telling patients to typically fast up to eight hours before coming in for surgery. If a patient breaks that rule, either have to delay their surgery for long enough for the stomach to empty or they end up having their surgery canceled. Even in spite of those precautions, The stomach naturally secretes acid, the mouth naturally secretes saliva, 
And those are things that can go into a trachea that we don't really have control over. And so when we inflate the cuff on this breathing tube, it essentially does, like you said, form a seal inside the trachea to stop that little amount of material from going into the lungs and choking you, essentially. And so you use an airway primarily, and, and now we finally know the big mystery behind why you're never allowed to eat before a surgery. It's to minimize the amount of, st- you said, stomach fluid that can be Basically swallowed any up into the sort airway? Of, um, exactly, stomach fluid, but any sort of content. If you eat a burger and then you had to have surgery, that burger could like come back up and literally lodge itself in your trachea. Oh, and then you go out like Mama Cass, <laughs> death by ham much. sandwich. Obviously, if you're in an emergency and if someone's had a major trauma, then you don't have a choice, then you have to go. But if something isn't an emergency, then typically we try to minimize that risk as much as we can. So tell us about that. I I mean, I know from my interactions with anesthesia, most of them are pretty even-tempered people uh, right up until the moment that the shit hits the fan. How is how is your trauma surgeries any different from your day-to-day normal ones? So, the emergencies we encounter um, are basically things are much more fast-paced. Like right now, I don't really work in a level one trauma setting where you see like really big car accidents or really big gunshots or things like that. Things are streamlined much more quickly. You have to think on your fast, think on your feet. Really, the conditions aren't always the most optimal. And you pretty much just had to do the best you can with what you've got. It's when, because you don't really have a choice. You don't have time. All you have to think about is, all right, I have to do this. Now I have to do this. Now I have to do this. I know how to do this. Take care of everything. Yeah, those trauma anesthesiologists are are tough people. I Let me tell you, so I do, I sometimes take care of the airway as well in the emergency mm-hmm. department. And obviously none of my patients have fasted for eight hours some of them are eating McDonald's as I'm interviewing them. Yes. So that 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 secretion, the food in the stomach thing, is a real problem. And um, there are times when you know when, when I go in and try to put in an airway, put in that breathing tube down into the trachea, where I'm smelling what they just had for dinner. Yeah. Additionally, the other problem with trauma is that when somebody has um, a major trauma to their head or their face and everything else, it distorts and really alters normal anatomy. And so we rely on that anatomy to be able to place that breathing tube properly. And when you're looking down the throat and all you see is blood gushing everywhere or all you see is everything torsed or twisted around, as this patient's becoming more and more unstable, it becomes very difficult to place this airway sometimes. Once you have somebody underneath i've always wondered about what exactly is it that they're breathing so i know you use certain gases to keep people under but is this all being exhaled like we normally breathe are they breathing into some elaborate series of mad scientist tubes are they rebreathing their own exhalations is it all recycled air like in airplanes or you know what what actually happens to this air um, that we exhale? Some machines do allow you to rebreathe the air that you exhale. They filter your car- exhaled carbon dioxide, which is a poison if it's breathed in. And we have a, what we call a desiccant or an absorber that absorbs your carbon dioxide and removes it from the air and it all but trace, 
amounts. The more common machine I'm used to using is the non-rebreathing circuit where you have one, you have a double-edged, a Y-shaped tube that connects to your breathing tube and one side pushes air in and you breathe out through the other side and that absorbs the rest of the gas and eliminates it. I always wondered, would, would that gas leak out and make everyone high? The typical concentration that we would have to put a person to sleep, like 1% to 2% of the total amount of gas is the sevoflurane. So it's a very actually small percentage of the gas that the patient keeps under to maintain them. Now let's say you leak that so that 1% to 2% of that 1% to 2% leaks out into the whole atmosphere of the OR, it would actually be in a very, very small quantity. It would be pretty unlikely to have a significant effect. But an important function of the machine is to take that exhaled gas and to also measure the concentration of, say, how much oxygen are they breathing out? How much carbon dioxide are they breathing out? What concentration of gas are they breathing out? So, And just to give you listening at home a little bit of a taste that of the stress that uh, Dr. Praz has to deal with, Let's talk about the physiological reasons behind some of these steps that he's been taking. You know, the first problem is when we're talking about intubating somebody uh, going into their chest and affecting their diaphragm muscle, you know, that's breaking a kind of vacuum that's needed for effective breathing. Things go from high concentration to low, and we create a vacuum to pull air in. So you have to breathe for the patient if the diaphragm muscle can't expand the lungs. Once that's done, then the surgeons can operate on the lungs, esophagus, heart, or anything else in the chest cavity because you're maintaining a vacuum. But if you're going into deep abdomen, like, you know, anything intestine or lower, then if you start poking at the abdomen, go ahead and do it on yourself. Your abdominal muscles contract. So now, never mind the fact that you have to cut into that, the muscles have a natural tendency to to spasm closed. So now you have to increase anesthesia to those dangerous levels they talked about again, or pick a drug to pharmacologically relax the muscles themselves. And that's not to mention looking at the amount of CO2 that someone is exhaling to make sure that they're not under so deep that you're getting those, their pulse and their blood pressure to make sure that they don't have reactions. So what, what are some of the most common complications you see or that you're on the lookout to prevent in okay, a standard well, patient? Um, so the biggest thing is um, the, the second that you put somebody to sleep, you're taking away their ability to breathe. So the first thing you have to do is essentially breathe for the patient yourself before getting the tube in. This is called ventilating, pushing air in and getting air out, or moving air. Not being able to move air, which can happen depending on the patient's body habits, depending on their airway anatomy. But if you can't move air and you can't get carbon dioxide out, the patient's oxygen levels can very quickly go down. And within a few minutes, if you're not able to ventilate accordingly, those oxygen levels could get dangerously low to the point where you'd start to have oxygen deprivation in the brain and major organs. That's the biggest thing we usually worry about. Typically, once a breathing tube goes in, that's not as much of a concern anymore. Um, that takes away most of the worry. But aside from that, most um, anesthetics will also 
lower your heart rate and lower your blood pressure uh, below what normal levels would be for your body. Typically, a healthy patient can tolerate a little bit lower blood pressure or a little bit lower heart rate. But somebody who's older, somebody who has a lot of um, chronic medical problems may not tolerate low blood pressure quite as well. So that's something that we also need to treat very aggressively. Those are some of the bigger things that we watch for and like universally amongst all cases. Is there one scientific advancement you'd like to see that would just solve a whole bunch of your problems? Huh. Um, there's definitely a lot of um, things that we would love to see that would really make a difference. I'll start by saying that there's been a lot of big inventions in the last, like, gosh, even since I was born. The pulse oximeter monitor, that little probe that you put on your finger in your doctor's office that tells you what your oxygen levels are, that just came about in the 80s. Your end tidal CO2 detector to tell you how much carbon dioxide you're breathing out. Very important monitor, also since the 80s. And it's crazy to think for like 20 years, the first open heart surgeries were done in the 60s, and they were doing open heart surgeries, cutting your chest open, putting you on a bypass machine without even being able to know your oxygen levels or your carbon dioxide levels. That to me is very crazy. But as far as other things that we could do, if there was a way to reverse inhaled gas rather than just letting it passively be exhaled and eliminated, that could definitely wake people up very quickly. That would be interesting to see. Funny that as an anesthesiologist, rather than a knockout gas, your dream list huh. includes a wake-up It would be gas. interesting, or even just some sort of IV meta, something like that, I guess. Yeah. We always tell people, you know, going to sleep is the easy part. It's waking up that's going to cost you. <laughs> For... Yeah, that was that that was that old fifties song, right? You you remember it, Ward? Cause waking up is hard to do. Right? That does give That's me a context. Yeah. Sure. I do not want to hear you sing that, Praz, <laughs> if you ever give me anesthesia. <laughs> Don't worry, if you ever have anesthesia, you won't remember any of that. So <laughs> That's right. Anesthetics no. do have a dark side, right? Most, if not all, anesthetics have a have an unfortunate uh, side effect of being agents that are that are prone to be abused. The big one being opiates. That's the mic- that's like the mac daddy of uh, most misused medications, probably in the United United States, probably in the world. In fact, now in opiate addiction is one of the leading causes of early demise for young people. Twenty fifteen, there were twenty thousand deaths over those. Deaths related to prescription painkillers. You know, we were talking about propofol. Even propofol can be abused as famous as famously uh, Michael Jackson was succumbed to propofol misuse. And ketamine, as we talked about, ketamine is an induction agent that we use in the operating rooms. To It's a hypnotic and it renders a person um, unconscious or semi-conscious. And according to the latest Department of Justice studies, 3% of... According to a Michigan University of Michigan study, 3% of high school students in, in their study have experimented with ketamine. It's a street mm. drug. As it turns out, ketamine acts on the NMDA receptor. Oh, the K-hole, the famous K-hole that can put you can yeah, go it's into. Really, so it's not that yeah. far of a stretch. A lot of similar substance around. I mean, you're absolutely right. A lot of the medications we use have a lot of addictive properties to them. Um, 
It's unfortunate, I'm sad to say, that within my specialty, drug abuse has actually been a very real problem. People have very easy access to things like narcotics, benzodiazepines, propofol, things like that. It's something that the anesthesia community takes very seriously and is really looking to try to fix as much as possible. Oh, Josh, you might appreciate this fact. I, I was looking up famous, you know, um, drug-related or medication-related deaths. And obviously, you know, there's Michael Jackson, there's, there's Joan Rivers, who was actually under therapeutic propofol sedation and unfortunately uh, passed away. But Sigmund Freud, did you know? Sigmund Freud was had um, end-stage cancer, and he ended his own life with a physician-assisted uh, lethal morphine dose. Mm. I mean, that's an odd, altogether another ball of wax when we're talking about, you know, end-of-life issues. But yeah, he uh, was actually able, he ended his life with wow. morphine. But you have to remember that in in his time, again, that 1850s to early 1900s, the only drugs you really had available and were being sold by your local equivalent of Walgreens or doctor's pharmacy were opium and alcohol and cocaine. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Different times. Right. We, we've gone back lots of times. You know, you know, your kid's coughing, give them this <laughs> bottle of cocaine. It'll just quiet them right up, which, while technically true, is probably not the best recommended it is an anesthetic, and it's it's not a it is not an illegal illicit drug. So in terms of DEA um, uh, classifications, it's it's actually a class. Oh shoot! It's I think it's a class two narcotic, meaning there are some legal uses for yeah. it. Cocaine, I think, is also a local anesthetic and has some it is, yeah. properties as well. Um, we use it for ENT yeah. procedures. Yeah, so what's yeah. yeah, so what's the difference between local and general anesthetics? When would you use one versus the other? And is there ever a choice where you can... These days, more and more, you're using both. A general anesthetic is one that reveals... That has a, basically a total shutdown of central uh, nervous system function, essentially. Anesthetic primarily acts at the brain and basically, therefore shuts down everything else, which is why it's general all over. Um, a local anesthetic, which we actually more commonly, I think you're referring to a regional anesthetic, is an anesthetic that only works on one part of the body. Like if you're having surgery on your arm, for example, you could give an anesthetic to make your entire arm go numb. To perform a regional anesthetic, we use the class of drugs called local anesthetics, the most common one is lidocaine or novocaine that we all know from our dentist office. And what we do is we essentially inject it into or is nearby a nerve that gives sensation to the area of the body where you're having surgery. And by taking away that sensation, the surgeon can essentially operate on that area and you don't feel a thing, essentially. There are sometimes, occasionally, where you do a local or a regional anesthetic and have a patient be completely awake during the surgery. The most common example there being cesarean sections where the mother is typically completely awake after having a spinal anesthesia. Now, the closest I can think of to hypnosis is, you know, a step under general anesthesia. Anesthesiologists and 
you know, other physicians sometimes will give you just a, a dose of medication to, so your body's relaxed a little bit. Almost, it's like the, you're, you're still conscious, your eyes are open, you're breathing on your own, and you're sitting up, but you don't remember a thing that's happening to you, or you don't comprehend a thing that's happening to you. And both anesthesiologists and, you know, um, emergency physicians and some of the other physicians can perform this procedure to do something along the lines of, you know, like draining an abscess or uh, doing a fractured uh, fracture reduction. Or Ketamine and propofol are two of the medications that we frequently yeah. use. Um, yeah, we can do procedures with um, twilight sedation, as they call them. Why is it called uh, twilight sedation? Oh, it, does it have to do with the vampires in yeah. twilight? I hope so. Oh, oh, I'm Team Jacob. No, no, Team Edward. No, no, well, Team Propofol. Um, even though, although it would be great to divide up the OR into werewolves and vampires someday, um, Twilight Sedation actually is, um, it's not really a proper anesthetic term. The, the term we use is actually called MAC, M-A-C, which stands for uh, Monitored Anesthesia Care. It's the third type of anesthetic, so... General anesthesia and regional anesthesia, as we said, have very specific definitions. And MAC anesthesia is essentially anesthesia of exclusion. It basically says anything that doesn't fit the definition of either general or regional anesthesia is considered a MAC procedure, quote-unquote. So there's a lot of room for interpretation. There's a lot of variety in the depth of sedation that you have. You have patients who are almost completely awake awake enough to follow instructions to the point or you have patients who are almost completely asleep close to the point of general anesthesia itself now pros are you familiar at all with the anesthetists i have seen it on youtube a couple of times yes i don't remember all the words now but i i've heard of it yeah it's it's a musically inclined anesthesiologist and I, I hope you won't get too mad at me for bringing up that you also, I know, are a very musically inclined anesthesiologist and one who shares my passion for parody music. I happen to know that you have a fantastic anesthesia rap, and I was wondering if I could convince you to, to enlighten us if I lay well, down absolutely. a Well, um, absolutely. I believe the song you're referring to is a parody of uh, a famous Eminem song, Lose Yourself, based on the 8 Mile soundtrack. But this is a song about management of a very serious condition called malignant hyperthermia, a very potentially fatal condition that I've thankfully never seen, and basically details how it's diagnosed, how it's managed, and goes from there. So, I've been wow. Waiting. That's so technical and specific. Yeah. I love it. I can't Have you heard wait. this word? All right. Well then, Sandman, whenever you're ready, take it away. Can my inner Eminem, my inner age. Look, if you had just one chance, or one opportunity, to see that case you've only ever heard about, will you take it? 
Are you going to concentrate? His body's sweaty, jaws clenched, pulse is ready, his urine up is dropping already, breathing's heavy, you're nervous, but you have to act calm and ready to save lives, but you keep on forgetting that you wrote down and lecture, years ago, don't even know where the M.A. card is though, it's easy now, everybody's freaking out, the waves are gone, flatline, must act now, snap off all the halothane, must, I burn pencil, they give, the bicarbonate, don't forget, ABC sign, Push dantrolene, give epinephrine and open your fluids to give the chloride. You move like the flesh, but he's crumping so fast that you hope he makes it back to the ICU. But now it's back to the task at hand. Temps almost 40. You better go grab some ice and hope it don't matter. You better cool him down through the NG. Foley, the IV, Missouri, been getting cold. You only get one shot. Do not wait to call for help. Maybe see the stuff once in every lifetime. You better cool himself through the NG. Foley, the IV, Missouri, can get him cold. You're one shot. Do not wait to call for help. You may be seeing this before. Turn it right. They came through the pores in his membrane. Thank you so much for that, Proz. I needed to have at least a brief sample, and we'll get you set up with a proper music studio for maybe our our Patreon patrons can get the the perfectly edited Shitty records if you could hear this um i have not been signed i'm still a free agent but let's move on to to just the tip unless of course there's any other fun surgical facts you uh, have to share with us there's a lot of things that i can think of too many things to even like come up with anything necessarily on the top of my head they have stories from being badass to like being able to save lives to hilarious encounters I've had with patients to just very big cases that I've done and some that experiences that have really humbled me as well. But one of the lighter, one of the funnier stories that I can remember off the top of my head is I had a 70-year-old lady who I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure she was uh, she was one of the hippies back in the 60s who really was enjoying life back then. I sort of got that feel. She basically was pleasantly demented at this time and to the point where she pretty much lost her filter to just about everything. I decided to go and listen to her heart and lungs with the stethoscope as we often do. So I say, ma'am, I'm going to listen to the stethoscope. I uh, place my stethoscope on her chest in a typical manner. She looks at me, she smiles, she says... You're just trying to feel my boobs, aren't you? <laughs> There's very few times that I've actually felt like really on the spot or uncomfortable. And um, I really had no idea what to say. Oh, that, that is very funny. But so you may have noticed that there was a lot more than our usual dose of history this episode. And part of that comes with our Just the Tip, which is right here in my own current residence of Illinois, in a little town just outside of Chicago known as Schaumburg, which is home to a delightful Japanese market, Mitsuwa. But there is, in fact, the Museum of Anesthesia, the Woods Museum of Anesthesia. Proz, did you know that there was an entire museum devoted had, to your specialty in the same state that we went no to med school I had no idea, in? actually. Back in thinking... 11 years of living in Illinois, I think I've only been in Schaumburg once. I, I took a drive out there, and it is, it's a small museum, but one which has a lot of history, and you can see the, the postage stamp for Professor Long that was only two cents. You can also see 
the first female anesthesiologist to grace a postage stamp in 1994, Dr. Virginia Apgar, who, of course, is famous for creating the Apgar scores used to assess newborn health. You can see the old gray mare, the original anesthesia cabinet, developed back in the 1900s and kind of what uh, is still used in some form or another in Praz's work today. And one of my favorite things, you can see Dr. Robert Hinkson's peace gun, which if you've ever seen any kind of sci-fi medical device, that's what the peace, it's based on the peace gun. It was featured as the hypo spray in Star Trek and many other science fiction films and is a fast injector for giving vaccines and medications through the skin that allows for mass injection. So this whole thing is there. There's pictures, there's stories with everything. The museum is a pittance. It's, I think, $5 admission, which is about the same price as the surgical museum. And I think the strangest thing I learned is that Charles Darwin once gave ether to a Venus flytrap to see if plants Ooh. could be a nest. How did that plants. work? I... Not well. <laughs> Turns out they can't. But I do encourage you to read his notes on the subject, which are absolutely <laughs> astonishingly I find hilarious. it hard to put a breathing tube in a plant. I can't see it reacting very well. Well, he was putting more of a, a chloroform-soaked rag, so he was trying to <laughs> gas a plant. That brings an end to this particular episode uh, covering the many chloroforms of anesthesia and either way you know it's a gas as always we love to hear your comments questions and feedback you can reach us on facebook on squarespace on twitter on patreon anywhere podcasts are downloaded we'd love to hear your reviews your ratings and we would love for you to support us spiritually emotionally and financially Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me. (laughs) (laughs) Me help. (laughs) With a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories. Thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.